can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, but the star and the namesake is Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ailey Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Haven't talked to my friend in a, in a while. He's been away, but um, while he's away, much has happened. Some that's made the headlines, some that's important that hasn't made the headlines. And on that, I think we'll start... Uh, the uh, show today, Victor, by getting your views on, um, you know, somewhat important within the conservative movement document that's come out. It's called the um, Statement on Freedom Conservatism. And uh, it's of interest, but I think it has uh, it's worthy of your observation. So let's get them and get to that right after these important messages. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'll mention a little later, uh, at a little more length, Victor, that you have a website, The Blade of Perseus, and that can be found at VictorHanson.com, and folks should be going there regularly. But more on that later. So, Victor, a number of conservatives, some um, 
some who used to be my colleagues at National Review, uh, many of whom you know and uh, I know, have uh, cobbled together and put together a statement called the um, uh, Freedom Conservatism Statement on Freedom Conservatism, where they try to I lay out a, a future uh, list of 10 principles of where the conservative movement should be going. It harkens, they say, the authors of it, they say, to the Declaration of Independence and also then to what was once a pretty prominent uh, statement of principles of conservatism from back in 1960 when the movement was just getting started. That was called the, the Sharon Statement. It's called Sharon because it happened in Sharon, Connecticut at Bill Buckley's uh, family home. Um, that was quite an influential document. Anyway, this document is is out there about, it's kind of written in opposition to the national conservatism folks. Uh, Matt, if I'm, and I'll be quiet here in, in half a second, Matt Continetti, who um, uh, is at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, has written an analysis of it for for uh, the Washington Free Beacon. So with so many prominent people signing on to this, Victor, I was a little, a little stunned that it hadn't gotten more attention from the actual signers. But anyway, it's out there, hanging around, waiting for your thoughts. What are they, Victor? Well, you know, sometimes I don't think we can keep it straight. There's paleoconservatism, neoconservatism, national conservatism, and freedom conservatism. So let's make a typology. We know paleoconservatism. That was kind of brought in the prominence of um, Pat Buchanan more in the modern times. And he made a good argument that Donald Trump appropriated a lot of it. And that, remember, was kind of a reactionary idea. We go back to we're a republic and not an empire. But it was mostly, not all, but mostly directed at border security uh, U.S. interest number one, no foreign entanglements, no optional, no optional military operations in the Middle East with dubious cost to benefit analyses, etc. And then we had the neoconservatives that after the fall of the, the wall and the end of communism, the idea was in that void America was going to. That was not, that was sort of a Robert Kagan um Bill Crystal, David Frum, and that had a lot. Jack, remember that was a lot uh, prominent in the National View. I, I supported some of it. It was, yeah, and it was to go out and after nine eleven, and particularly and spread conservatism. And then we had national conservatism, and that was kind of a. It was a little bit paleo conservative, but the emphasis was on national concerns, American first. And that was sort of came to prominence with Donald Trump and primary four or five tenants will get the border first before you worry about anything else. Close it. It's national sovereignty. Break up the power of these imperial bureaucracies, decentralize the government, cut it back, but not. Don't go down the radical, libertarian, laissez-faire, uh, the Bushes. Uh, let's just talk about capital gains tax, deregulation, tax cuts. Not that they oppose those. Indeed, Trump enacted them. But it was more, let's make sure first that people have jobs and right. 
livable Social Security benefits when they retire, et cetera. A little, a little pro-Victor on the almost industrial policy, pro-industrial yes, policy. Yeah, that's a very good point, Jack. So that the government would kind of come into the free market vis-a-vis foreign trade. And that, of course, set this. that was the intellectual defense of uh, the Trump Chinese policy, that we don't just turn over our national policy with China to the corporate elite that that don't seem to care about patent infringement or copyright and theft or dumping of currency or uh, racking up huge surpluses at our expense. Okay. And then we have this freedom conservatism. I think you mentioned liberty, pursuit of happiness, foundation of prosperity, full faith and credit, a nation of laws, not men, Americans by choice and uh, out of many one. And I think if I, I was reading the article that you, that you cited, and then I, I had read the manifesto, and it's sort of there's some elements on it that are pretty good that we all are Americans, and we had some checkered racial challenges, but now uh, we're all united by freedom, and so we have to have certain values in the Declaration and the Constitution that have to be in. You know, civic minded, and these are going to apparently uh, trump uh, tribal interest. And then there's going to have to be no ambiguity about America's role in the world as the beacon and custodian of freedom. That's a little tricky because uh, in the past, when we've done that, we've kind of got into uh, places that where we didn't want to be. And then freedom, and, and then there's a I think the 10th and a lot of the others, Jack, are really directed at the university, uh, social media, this idea that you use the government and like the FBI to to contract out with Twitter to suppress free expression or Google rigs the order of its searches for ideological purposes or you can't speak freely on campus or if you're accused of, I don't know, sexual harassment in an Ivy League school, you, you don't get any due process uh, Bill of Rights protection. So all of that is uh, I'm trying to in my mind, I'm trying to distinguish it from neoconservatism. And uh, it doesn't seem to be all that much different in the sense that it's national, it's national and it it praises the United States singularity and we want to be unified and we have to be engaged in the world. I guess what I'm trying to say, Jack, is if you took the, all of these manifestos and you applied them to Ukraine, it seems like the freedom conservatism would be supporting the policies right now, of Biden, but egging him on a little bit more. Right. And the national conservatives would be sort of in the, Oh, I don't know, Laura Ingram's uh, group or maybe Tucker Carlson and wanting to pull back, maybe get them some arms for defensive purposes. But then the freedom conservatism would see, see this as a chance to score big against Putin's anti-freedom block and to promote Ukraine. And and so it all sounds well. And uh, but I'm not sure it's such a. A big thing. I, I think it's written in reaction to Donald Trump. And I think. Yeah, was, I, I, I agree. It's, it's sort of. Yeah, it's just, you know, we have to we're not going to have economic freedom if we have huge debts. Trump ran up the debt. We're not going to have national 
oh, excuse me, we're not going to have conservative freedom if everybody's hooked on entitlements and the Social Security system is going to go bankrupt. And yet people who uh, don't plan or they're dependent on it, we're not going to have freedom if we start losing major allies that want to be with us because on free countries bully them or invade them. We're not going to have freedom if uh, there's consortia that partner with the government um, industry and partnerships, social media. So it's, it is a little bit more libertarian and it's a, it's a reaction to Donald Trump. I guess I was trying to, when I read it, I was trying to see which politician would embrace it the most. And I suppose it's something like Nikki Haley, maybe, I don't know, something, somebody like that, who's kind of a hawk on foreign policy or Tim Scott, maybe, or it's not quite Tom Cotton, um, He's he's a mixture of national and freedom, but I don't I don't quite understand what the purpose was other than to try to give an intellectual an intellectual rallying cry that you don't have to follow the MAGA people on to Trump. And that would be a rallying cry for the non-Trump. Yeah, I, next election. Yeah. I wonder if two things and uh, get your opinion on one. I wonder if the signatures signatories of this statement would have applauded Donald Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore in 2020, um, which is much more of a, you know, talk about patriotism less than this is that's one thing. The second thing is there's a, if I saw, found somewhere else that um, the, the signers have agreed to have like a three part obligation and and one has to do with the part of this statement that is about the promissory note, essentially, yeah. you know, black Amer- American blacks. And I'm quoting now about the obligation. Many who descend from victims of slavery and segregation now face economic and personal hurdles that are the direct result of this legacy. We commit to expanding opportunity for those who face challenges due to past government restrictions on individual and economic freedom. And to me, I think uh, uh, we have had 50 years and trillions of dollars of government destruction of the black family. And and this document doesn't speak about that's the real problem, I think, facing uh, the the, uh, that uh, segment of America that hasn't been able to make good on the promissory note. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I think this was a kind of a Jack Kemp. Yeah. We're going to go and have enterprise zones. And this is going to be directed at people who haven't been successful in the American project. And then they had a little, as I remember, they had a little throwaway line, but we don't, we oppose discrimination or racial bias by anybody. Okay. That sounds good, but I don't quite know what they're doing. I like the idea about they're not, we're not going to run up debts and Trump did Obama did Bush did. And that, that was good. And, but right. You know, the, the problem that I had with it, the foundation of prosper uh, prosperity and private cronyism that, that sounded good, but we kind of had that. We kind of had it with George Bush's enterprise zones. And we had, McCainism and we had Romneyism and a lot of people thought that was trickle down. Not that it, it it was, but I'm saying I don't know. I guess what they're saying is we got to get the government out of 
trade policy. We got to get the government out of the Federal Reserve policy. We got to get the government out of everything. And that sounds great. Um, and they're right about bureaucracies, but they don't seem to, when they talk about too much regulation and bureaucracies, that's an old saw. We all know that. But what they don't really talk about is the weaponization of our bureaucracies. What's new is we've never had the IRS, the DOJ, the CIA, the FBI, the, the Director of National Intelligence, all using the levers and power of government to pursue one person or one party and go uh, and exempt and go full hog, whole hog with the the other party. And they don't seem to that that's not in there. Yeah. And then so it's kind of a lot of banalities. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I, I suppose. I mean, what what would be the purpose? So you they're going to be in a debate stage and somebody says, Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, if Rubio runs or Ted Cruz, or do you are you a national conservative? Are you a freedom conservative? You know what they're going to say? I'm a I'm a conservative and I love freedom and I love not the national project. Yeah. So it's it with you know it. There's a problem with National Review doing this and any any group. Oh, well, that, okay, I said National Review didn't do. I think it was it was assigned us from National Review. But, yeah, but yeah. But I just don't think a bunch of thinkers are going to issue an ideology, an ideological statement that's going to make much influence. That's all. Yeah. I just don't think it's, it is. I um, think it would make more uh, whoever that who the folks that wrote it wrote it. It's there. It's out there. Folks should go find it, read it. You may be inspired by it. You, you may not be. But I'd like to see a day where 120 or 200, however many folks who sign this come together and and want to make a case for conservatism that uh, has religion in it. This this document is totally devoid of you know, God is the person that wasn't invited to it. And the irreligious, we're talking about problems in America, the you know, skyrocketing irre- irreligiosity of, Amer- of America. Well, and, the and then the, of the family. family Remember, yeah. they, they, I think it was, what was it, the foundation of prosperity or pursuit of happenings. They were talking about families, loving families, communities, meaningful work, raising educated according to their values, corrosive. Com- yeah, we get all that. But at some point, you might want to say the nuclear family is the basis of fertility in this country, whether you like it or not. And we're shrinking. Right. We're 1.6. And we have a lot of communities where there's no fathers. But this idea, this Jack Kemp idea that if you just go into Detroit and you put so many industries there, it's going to offer so much opportunity that everybody's going to go work. And it's going to be like it was in the 1950s. It's not going to happen unless you have another social cultural agenda as well and right. it has it has to be pretty blunt it has to say you're not if you're going to be a single mother and you are not going to pursue work and and you're just not going to stay home and have two or three kids by two or three different husbands it's not going to work the husband is not there the father's not there but there's there's nothing it was kind of pulling it was more or less i suppose that the economic agenda will solve right. all problems. And our right. problem right now is not one of, there is inequality, but it's not one of national prosperity as they think. We're still the richest country in the world. I just drove back across California. I mean, I was passed on the, 
on the freeway by people in Teslas and Mercedes right. that were going 80 miles an hour. They were of all different colors. They, this And I pulled in at a couple places to stop. Everybody, everything is packed. People have money. Uh, you can, The Biden's economy, I don't think, is any good. But I'm, we're at such a level of affluence and leisure that I don't think uh, saying that we can just deregulate everything is going to give us more pro- prosperity. It's a, the, the sickness in America is the destruction of civic education, the destruction of traditionalism, destruction, destruction of the family, the destruction of marriage, the destruction of all of that. Right. And it falls heavily. It's, it's a legacy of the 60s where the upper, 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 and middle classes, mostly white educated people, experimented with social pathologies from drugs to promiscuity to commune living to not judging one's lifestyle. And when that filtered down to the lower middle classes and the poor, it was disastrous. They had no safety net. So anyway. All right. Well, Thanks for your views on all those yeah. things, Victor. I think um, well, we can ratchet up the um, it may be short, but we can ratchet up the uh, emotions uh, and on, on our next topic. And that that should be the U.S. women's soccer team. And let's get to that right after these important messages. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'd like to remind our listeners, particularly if you're new, that Victor does have a, a formal, official website, The Blade of Perseus. Its web address is VictorHanson.com. Go there. Why? Because you'll find the links to various um uh, perform- check on performance appearances. Well, they are performances too. Uh, Victor on other podcasts and shows, uh, links to uh, his the pieces he writes for American Greatness, his syndicated column, the archives for these podcasts, and his ultra articles. And ultra articles are those 
two or three a week that Victor writes exclusively for the Blade of Perseus. If you don't have a subscription, you're not going to be able to read them. And if you're a fan of Victor Davis Hanson and you're not reading everything Victor writes, there's something wrong there. And you can correct that. Subscribe. Five bucks gets you in the door. Uh, that's monthly uh, discounted $50 for the year. The Blade of Perseus. Please visit. All right, Victor. There they are. The, the U.S. women's soccer team. Our ladies, they're out there. They're before a match with the Vietnamese uh, women's soccer team and the their respect, this country's respective anthems are sung. The Vietnamese are singing their hearts out and uh, look at the American team. And most of them are standing there in some sort of, uh, of form of a protest. A few, I think three women were singing. We've seen this before, Victor, but I think it really gets to a lot of Americans like, wait, you're America's team and you hate them. You represent America and you're out there in the public and you, you hate America. That's how it comes off to me anyway. What are your thoughts, my friend? Oh, well, I mean, it has zero, zero. Wasn't that the opening match of the World Cup? And I think everybody just booed them or yeah. they, they were very angry. And and after all this psychodramas with Colin Kaepernick and all of the L.A. Lakers, and we've gone through all this post-George Floyd stuff. What, what's what's the purpose of it? What, what's the purpose? Is it saying if they had any conscience or they had any values, they just rip off their U.S. insignia and say, we're, we're citizens of the world. We're Davos. Just just print Davos on the back and say, you know what? We don't represent this toxic country. Now, we are the wealthiest and we're most privileged and the most free women in the world. And if you look at our lifestyles, you can see that we have advantages that no other woman in the world has. But it has nothing to do with the United States. It's just organic. And that's their attitude. And nobody really wants to believe it. And uh, when you have communist Vietnamese that are much prouder in their country and uh, than they are. And then remember, I think it was 2019. And, the, you know, let, let's be honest that the architect of it was that Megan Rapinoe, right, who became really a multimillionaire with her endorsements when she came out as gay. Right. And she kind of hinted that there was an ideological, I don't know what it would be, stamp that the LGBTQ community was heavily influenced by or influenced from the women's soccer team. And they were synonymous, at least in her advertising, her little dyed hair. And I'll never put my hand over my heart. I think she said all that stuff. And it, it goes nowhere. They get, they get rich in their, their narrow constituency and they get fame, but they don't care about anybody else. And nobody, let's face it. Nobody feels that whether the women's national soccer team, given their record and what they say and do, has any connection with them at all. I could care less. I don't care if they win or lose. If they can't even have the decency to salute the flag, I, I have no. You see, what I'm saying is that they have a nation of 335 million people. And if they say, we really don't want to associate you symbolically or iconically, then, of course, the people in the United States can say, same here. Just go out and be orphans. You know, just go out and get a national. Why don't you get Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and be the, the Facebook team or something? 
But they never do that. They're so hypocritical. They use this little birth and this perch as if they represent us. And then they get publicity by being edgy and by disowning their own country. And then they get endorsements in this hyper capitalistic world and they get a lot of money and they get a lot of uh, press and media attention, which is worth a lot of money. And they never make the connection. It's because of the United States. They have their ingrate, their ingrates. They have no gratitude at all. Yeah. Rich ingrates. Rich uh, ingrates. Yes. Yeah. Hey, can I throw a curveball at you? Yes. Do you mind? I didn't. I just it just dawned on me. I wanted to talk to you about this, but I didn't let you know. And you didn't talk with Sammy about the. Uh, I didn't get to listen to all your podcasts. The um, resignations of the various Stanford, the president and the and the dean. No, did we did not. Would no. you? Would you venture? Well, I, I mean, we, Mr. Tessa Levine yeah. uh, resigned about three days ago. I was traveling. And everybody knew it was going to happen. So uh, to remind our audience, I don't know why it came up again, but three decades ago, he had there had been allegations that a team of scholars of which he was one, co, a co, uh, he had co-written a series of articles in which I think he was more or less in charge of translating a lot of their findings into pictures and illustrations. And, and they didn't really represent uh, a finding that could be replicated. Okay. So they put data in there that didn't really confirm what the experiment and data, what I, I would mean in the illustrations as well. So why is he, they're going after him now? Well, he's an old white guy who's tied up with corporate, not old. He's, Younger than I am, I think, but he's he's got a he was very wealthy in the in the Silicon Valley genetic research, medical corporate culture, and he's white Canadian male. Okay, and as we know from the vocabulary scandal at Stanford and the woke scandals and the law school scandals, Stanford feels that it's transitioning transitioning with 15,000 administrators and 16,000 students, transitioning with a boast that had only let in 20% of the incoming class this year was white, boast, uh, uh, transitioning in the sense that we don't consider the SAT valuable, but in fact, we feel it's detrimental and probably inherently racist, so we got rid of it. So that's the transition, and he didn't fit that. And so maybe the motivation was different from uh, what did him in was his own laxity. Then he, the cover up is always bad too. If he had have just come out maybe a year ago and said, I was, I, I was wrong on that. It wasn't a mortal sin, but in the world of science, you have to correct every inaccuracy. And so I want to withdraw that art. If he had have done that, I think he might've survived, but instead he wrote these very embarrassing apologies. I don't mean in the modern, but in the classical Greeks apologia that he said, this is, I'm not guilty. I, I resent what the Stanford Daily is saying about me. I really, and then the, he couldn't square that circle. So then he was going to have one of the board members involved in the investigatory committee, and that wasn't going to work. Somebody who bought stock in his company, so they finally got a disinterested law firm who got the necessary 
expertise and they found him not damning. I mean, they didn't say he was a fraud. They just said his methodology did not adhere to scientific principles. And while he may have not promulgated that deliberately, or he may not have known that at the time, uh, when it was brought up to him, rather than contesting something which was clearly, he was clearly an error, he would have been advised, it would have been advisable for him to make the necessary correction. That was what they said. And if you're president of university and you, you're supposed to be the epitome of scholarly integrity, you, right. can't, you can't exist. So now we open it up. And remember, this is on top of the the Persis Bell, the provost quit the second number two. And then we had a diversity, equity, inclusion czar in the law school who Furian Steinbach. Yes. And she she uh, apparently ambushed uh our judge, our, our judge, a country's judge, a federal judge, because when he came in and they shouted him down over LGBT trans issues or whatever it was, they were prepared for him. And she mysteriously had a written text prepared. So when they were screaming and yelling, which she must have anticipated or even colluded with, and she sympathized them. And then all of a sudden she took the podium and read this thing. So the appearance was that I'm going to sandbag this this invited guest, this federal judge. And then when you add in the Phillips of we hope your daughters get raped and that kind of screaming at him, it was a it was a disaster. And then we have the Bankman Freed cryptocurrency scandal. He's on campus and has two parents, two people, two members of the law school. Uh, there are allegations. I'm not. I'm not confirming that I know that they're accurate. There are allegations that he was transferring valuable real estate monies to them at a time when his house of cards was starting to fall. So basically, people who had given him money, he was not candid with and ruined their lives. But there was still fumes of that money, and he made sure it went to his parents in the form of real estate. And then we had two other members of the law school, uh, one uh, attacked a female Latino uh, lawyer that was um, defending Johnny Depp, said some very terrible things about her. We had another one who testified in Congress and, uh, I don't know, bizarrely, Jack attacked uh, Baron Trump and said he's not a baron. And that, 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 that was just crazy. Yeah. And, when you, and then we had the vocabulary. We at the university are not supposed to use the word American or immigrant da 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 i could go on there's all kinds of and what is this the symptomology is that there is nobody at the top that can be a heroic figure and say not this pig this university is not owned by a bunch of 18 to 21 year olds who are passing through for four years they're important but they do not own this university nor does the a uh, couple of thousand faculty who happen to be here at this time, nor do the administrators. It belongs to the people who went there before, the active uh, alumni, the people who support it, uh, and the restrictions they accept when they take federal money. And they have a voice, too. And they are in big trouble because a lot of the people, whether they're law school alums, they feel that their brand is tarnished. Or right, I'll give you a couple of 
anecdotes what I mean. I, I was at a place where a lot of the alumni came up and asked me about this recently. And one of them said, my degree is not going to be worth anything because if you let in people by race and you abolish the SAT, then Victor, you know what the faculty has got? They got three choices. They either have to inflate the grades, they either have to water down the curriculum, or they either have to keep standards and grade standards and curriculum standards, and they're going to be called a racist if their grading doesn't fit DEI guidelines. And that will mean the university is not after meritocracy or excellence. He had a good point. And so they're worried about the quality. They think the law school embarrassed them. Uh, the president embarrassed them. So now we have an intern. President Richard Salyer, he's a classical scholar, so I, I have come across him. I mean, he, we're in the same field. And uh, it's kind of interesting at Hoover because the classics department has always been kind of hostile to Hoover. But if you look at the number of PhDs in classics and you look at their publication record, Jack, they're much more impressive than the classics department. And by that, I mean... We have Barry Strauss, the Cornell ancient historian at Hoover. We have Bruce Thornton, who's written nine books on classics at Hoover. We have Paul Ray, who has written the definitive history of the Peloponnesian War. He's got a visiting Hoover appointment. And we've got my assistant, David Berkey, who just wrote a book, a Yale PhD in classics. And that's six of us. And, and so when you look at the quality of classics here, and you look at it, the classics department, which is woke, right? It's not, it's kind of ironic. And then we have, so Richard Salyer is a classicist, and all of us at the Hoover Institution know who he is. He's a very solid scholar, and he's going to be an interim president for a year or two. And then we'll see what happens mm. when the search, the whole key will be the search committee, as it always is in these things. But Stanford, when you, I wrote an article for the new criterion and I had pointed out when you add what I just mentioned and you put it into the Theranos formula where we had a former Stanford student, albeit a dropout, but some very prominent Stanford Hoover people on the Theranos board. And it's an $8 billion Ponzi scheme that's melted down, resulting in she and her co-conspirator CEO are going to go to prison. And we have all these people, some of them the most illustrious people in the United States that were on that board. It doesn't reflect well on Stanford. None of this right. reflects well on Stanford. And people wanted to want Stanford to be reflected well upon. I mean, it was right. it, it birthed Silicon Valley. It was a it was Stanford Research Triangle, all these great Stanford professors. And, you know, I wrote a book, Who Killed Homer, with John Heath, and we were kind of kidding around. We were, I mean, it was serious. We were worried about classics. But the ability to write that book, or we both went to Stanford uh, and the classics department. We had our criticisms about old fogies. But, my God, when you look back at the 12-seminar the requirement or the Greek and Latin composition required or the three-hour site translation Greek and well, Latin languages or the three-hour Greek history and Roman history and Greek literature and Roman history. And then you look at the PhD oral exam, and then you look at, then you have to be certified in French and German. And you look at all that and compare it to today, it's very different. Yeah. So I look back at those guys and I think, you know, I was only 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. And I thought, wow, this is, 
these people are pedantic or they're boring. But when you get older, you think, wow, I'm really glad I had people of that caliber that knew so much. I mean, that's a rare quality to go in and give a report in a class and you say something like, you say it, you you mention a word in Apuleius's golden ask, and the professor says, you know, that a word appears six times in late Latin literature, and he could cite each word. Mm. You're talking about a corpus, 50, 60, 70 million words. Right. And so that type of learning is being lost, but they did transfer it to one more generation, and our generation has not been successful in passing that legacy on. So all of these are issues at Stanford, and I think it's it's yeah. it's either going to save itself or it's going to it's slide into permanent mediocrity. I'm I'm a little curious about the the Stanford Hoover dynamic, and I don't want to get you in, in a rat hole or in, into trouble. And and I hope it's of interest to our listeners. But you know, mentioning the uh, current classics professors at at the school compared to the stature of of uh, those who are Hoover fellows does take if if you could take ideology out of it. Do you think the typical Stanford professor looks at Hoover and that big building that, you know, dwarfs the campus, looks at it with some degree of jealousy? I know there's hostility there, but is there jealousy there? Well, a a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution has to be tenured via the the appropriate department at Stanford, first of all. Right. So you you either a full professor or a full senior fellow is what I'm saying. So they understand that we have the same academic standards and much higher because if you if I have to be tenured, I have to be tenured by the classics department on one element of my life. And that's my Ph.D. work and my journal articles that are peer reviewed and academic books. They are not evaluating me on public commentary, books on contemporary issues. In fact, those might be a liability. Right. But if they tenure you, and they have to tenure every one of us, that is, they have to pass on a recommendation to the provost that we satisfy the academic credentials at Stanford University at the highest step, then that's the beginning for us. In other words, we're not going to hire a person in classics that wrote a dissertation called Warfare and Agriculture and the other Greeks or even a war like no other. Right. That might get me tenure, but it's not going to get me tenure at Hoover. So we have to tenure them for purposes other than Stanford tenures of them. You see what I mean? Yeah. And what's the what are those criteria? Can you run a major policy program? So in my case, we have a military history program and contemporary conflict big. We edit and produce Strategica. But you have to have something that affects the contemporary uh, political, cultural, social, economic, military scene. And then you have to offer commentary writing on contemporary political, cultural issues. And you have to every once in a while write a book. That is not just a narrow university press book. So we have dual. And so in in appreciation for that, we don't have to teach. You can be a joint appointment if you'd like. But, you know, I, I have been a visiting professor at Stanford. I got a Ph.D. there. So I would prefer to be at Hillsdale. So I've always said I don't want to ask them. I don't think they probably would have wanted me anyway. But I want to go to Hillsdale College in my month off. And I've done that for 20 years, but we have joint appointments. But the point you're making is 
we make a higher salary than full professors, at least in the arts and sciences. I'm not talking about the medical school or maybe the business school. And we don't have to teach. And we, if you look at the, the, it's right in the center of the campus and there's no more iconic symbol of Sanford than the Hoover Tower. So when you're up there and you're in the 11th floor and you can see San Francisco, it's it's a, a rare office. And we just built two, basically $200 million, one $100 million building, another 100. So it's got state-of-the-art facilities, got high salaries. You do not have to teach. So, yes, I've had this happen in my last 21 years where people have said to me, oh, that's a right-wing thing. Hey, is there any chance I can get in? That kind of schizophrenia. <laughs> yeah. And we have, we just, I should say, I mentioned Josiah Ober, the classicist at um, Stanford, has just joined us. So that's seven, seven PhDs in classics. And we're all, uh, we're not just all writing policy. We're writing about the ancient world as well. And so I think if you were to rate classics departments and you looked at the quality of the Hoover classics faculty with Barry Strauss, Josh Over, Paul Ray, uh, Bruce Thornton, myself and and David Berkey, I think we would have a much stronger Perfect. faculty than, than almost any university, but I'm prejudiced. That's so okay. and that that's not just true of classics. So when you look at the economics and you see John Taylor, John Cogan, Michael Boskin, John Cochran, Josh Rao, and you see that group of people, and then you look at universities, do they have people of that caliber? Right. I'm not even mentioning because he's uh, 93, but when you have Tom Sowell there, Tom right. Sowell was brilliant. And we had Milton Friedman. When I got there, the first person I talked to was Robert Conquest. So I love Bob. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, uh, and then – and then Great I, historian. I, I, I bump into Shelby Steele, who – I mean, if you're talking about the two greatest students of race relations in the in the 20th, late 20th century and early 21st, it's Tom Sowell and Shelby Steele. Yeah. So I and, you know, Condoleezza Rice is the director of the of the Hoover Institution. So if you compare her stature with, you know, with the president of Stanford, I'm, I don't want to be deprecatory, but. In the, on the national scene, on the educational scene, she's a much more influential figure. So when you add all of that in, and then when you look at the Stanford only, Stanford has about $35 billion, billion endowment. We only have about $900 million, which is huge because we're very small compared to right. them. But when you look at the overseers at the Hoover Institution, they're as illustrious, if not more so, than the ones at Stanford. I mean, they're not as wealthy because there's not as many of them. So what I'm getting at is it's it it's a force to be reckoned with as long as we stay we have to stay true to the mission statement there's two things that everybody has to do when you take money from somebody else in a nonprofit sense you have two overriding commands if you violate any one of them then you are nothing you're nothing and the first is you have to find what the mission statement is of your organization and in our case it's freedom, limited government, free markets, and by association, war, revolution, and peace. And that means deterrence in foreign policy. And the second thing is you have to honor donor intent. 
So if a donor comes in and says, I would like to give $50,000 for this particular program because, well, you don't take the 50000 and say, ha, he gave it to me. I think I'm going to go bring this guy in who doesn't quite believe or I'm going to go expand it in areas. You don't do that. You do it once and you have no credibility. Yeah. And if you don't, if you can't do that, you say to him, I can't do that. I'm sorry. And that and then it, you get a reputation at Hoover that you will not spend one dime unless it reflects donor intent and it's consistent with the mission statement. You And we've had people in the past who haven't adhered to that and we've we've taken a hit. But I'm very confident recently it's uh, my gosh. It's growing. Its uh, budget is expanding. We're having the candidates come out and we're getting some superb senior fellow conservative appointments that are coming in. And I know we've been under attack, but I think we've turned the I, I just think that it's a very exciting time to be there, especially in the military history program where yeah. we are. Um, well, we are going to record another podcast and we're going to talk about that and strategic on the next one. But uh, uh, it's great, great news about um, Hoover and interesting your perspective on what's going on at Stanford. We've got, Victor, a little time left for t this uh, podcast. Then there's a controversy uh, that's uh, taken over America the last week or so, and that's about bad small towns, evil small towns. And we're going to get your views on this right after this final important message. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I want to give myself a little plug, Victor, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, I have my permission. I appreciate it, my friend. It upsets some of our <laughs> listeners to hear me talk about myself. No, they, they don't. I, I I was at an event and I saw, I met so many of our listeners, and they're just wonderful people. I mean, yeah, they, they give ideas all the time, and then if they're critical, they're critical <laughs> of me more than you or Sammy. But no, no, oh my gosh, go on. Hey, you should go visit the Victor. Well, we're talking about other things. The Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club, which is on Facebook. Great people. It's just so occasionally like I wish Jack would shut up <laughs> post there. And then if the well, see, I wish Victor would shut up. No, no, my gosh, Victor, Victor, you have no clue how beloved you are there. I mean, they call it the Victor Davis Hanson fan club after all. Um, so, hey, but seriously, though, when you're on Facebook, check that out and maybe join if you're on Twitter at uh, VD Hanson. That's Victor's uh, handle. Again, I mentioned the blade of Perseus. And, if, and for me, um, I write Sybil Thoughts, a free weekly emailed newsletter. I do that 
for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are trying desperately to strengthen civil society. I offer a dozen plus recommended readings. Here's Victor wrote this great piece on this. Here's the link. Here's a short excerpt. I think you'll like it. And a lot of people have been turned on to uh, other publications or sources for information through Civil Thoughts. So uh, go to civilthoughts.com, please, and sign up. Uh, Victor, last topic. The Jason Aldian, I hope I said it right, um, country music singer, uh, has a, a song, Try That in a Small Town with a video that showed clips from the nastiness and craziness of 2020 riots in the streets. Of course, um, anything that the left disagrees with immediately gets the brand of racist, but it set off this conversation. That's not a conversation. (laughs) This diatribe by elites about the evils of small town, which I don't think is anything new, Victor, uh, as a classicist, as you were talking about. Uh, but great hostility from uh, from the chattering classes about this guy, this song, Small Town America, and his response was, was go screw yourself. It was kind of heartening. Anyway, Victor, you're from a small town. And I am. Just- well, it's gone. I grew up in a town of 6,500, and now it's a, bedroom, it's a bedroom community of Fresno, so it's much larger, about 20,000. But I'm still out in the same house in a rural area. But it was there's a couple of things that his name is Jason Aldian, isn't it? And he he wrote that song and he said, we don't do this in this town and we don't do that. And he had I guess the video got in trouble because he showed pictures of the violence of Antifa and BLM. And therefore, if there was somebody that was not white in the video, then he is a racist. But he doubled it. He didn't he didn't apologize. And I think that's. That's what we all are doing now. Nobody is apologizing right. anymore. It's like I could get back to that 1984 commercial. Remember the woman runs in yeah. with a ball and chain. She throws it up into the Apple Big Brother window. Right. That was that Apple commercial. And that's what people are doing. They don't care. And we saw that with Target. We saw that with Anheuser-Busch. We saw that with Disney. We saw that with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And his point was that don't think that your urban values and your urban fad and you're decriminalizing the police and you're smashing grab and you're carjacking and all of this stuff is what America's about. And thousands, millions of small communities and families across the country, more than 51% of the people don't buy into this. So we're going to let people we be reminded that the left may have Google and Facebook and the Washington Post and the New York Times and NPR and the L.A. Lakers and Hollywood and Netflix and the corporate boardroom and the Rockefeller Ford. They have it all, but they don't have the people. And so he knew that. And he just, right. you know, the thing about woke is very strange. <laughs> If you have confidence that you can break through the woke barrier, this like the sound barrier, right? Now, you can you can fight woke and you can lose and really get hurt. But if you think you can break through it, that is either by force of character or celebrity, like in his case, if you break through it, then you're exempt. You just say, more, hey, my song is going, you know, right. 
it, it's great. And we're not going to buy Anheuser-Busch. What are you going to do to us? <laughs> Go ahead. We'll say whatever we want. And you can say, you know, Mulvaney, Mulvaney, Mulvaney is not going to help you. We're broken through. We don't care anymore. We All can right. tell you we don't want a cod piece on a child's <laughs> cutoffs. It doesn't matter. You can say anything you want about me. And that that's the attitude that he has. My only slight tweak is I grew up in a small town. So I was in high school from 1967 to 1971. And it hit hard, our high school, the drug, Vietnam, counterculture. We were not immune to it. I mean, we were kind of five years back. What hit San Francisco in 66, 65 hit Selma and 70 or 60. By that, I mean, there were four or five people I knew very well that were OD'd on drugs. And I know other people who took drugs and later in life became dysfunctional, homeless or out of our small hometown. But more or less, we had a kind of familial upbringing and a face-to-face society, you know, that famous sociological canon that if you can go into a town and you can recognize every single person by face, maybe not by name, but by face. And usually that's defined by sociologists, about 5,000 people. And Aristotle talks about the ideal polis as well in the politics. And that's the, the ideal that once you get beyond a community where you don't, you go in and you see strangers repeatedly, then that has less social cohesion. But even though we had a face-to-face society. And I meant by that, if I drove to town, I probably, by the time I was 18, knew every single person's face. You know what I mean? But You did. Yes, I did. I did. And my parents did, everybody. And that created a shame culture as well. And remember, in the late 60s and 70s, there was no, oh, you're a poor little juvenile. So you break into the sporting goods store in Fresno and you steal stuff. It is Jock Smith, 17, resident of 248 Palm Street, Selma, was caught last night in a sporting goods store. Mm-hmm. Uh, tr- that's what they did. Why do I have a feeling that's a real story? They should just oh, change yeah, the well, names. And then, and then the there's another one. Jose Lopez uh, was uh, when people came to put out a flame at his house, they noticed a heroin injection kit. He lives at South McCall Avenue. You know, that was the kind of stuff they did. And so everybody was. And then, they, oh, man, your dad got caught with an injection kit. Oh, they would say things like, what happened to you? It was shame, you know, and. Not just from the the white minority, but the Hispanic majority, very traditional community. And it was and that really everybody thought I thought it was brutal and unfair. You know, I'd come on my mom. Why do they publish people's names in the paper? They're just trying to shame it. I just you know, I just read the crucible. This is terrible. (laughs) That was an idiot. So and, you know. My mom was a kind of a conservative. She said, well, there's some value with shame after all. But I was shamed in that kind of community. My grandfather would always say to me, I would go walk with him as we turned on vowels with these metal twisters. And he said, you know, I, I just went to town and that Wilson boy had that ugly cigarette dangling from his mouth. Can you believe mm. that, Victor? 
and I knew his grandfather. He, <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah. oh I never want to have a cigarette dangling from my mouth. Right. Or, he'd, or he'd say, I, I saw some boys out here and there's a bunch of beer bottles. And I went out there in the afternoon. And I, I swear to God, that's, that's the Wilson boy. He was just out here on a Sunday drinking in my vineyard. Do you know anything about that? And I thought, hmm, I remember that Wilson kid said, hey, Vicar, do you mind if I drank in your vineyard? <laughs> so it was that kind of, it yeah. was that lifestyle. And it was really, yeah. it was, you know, it was very con constricted. And I know it. With, and some people, when the cultural tsunami hit us, we were 200 miles from San Francisco. When that hit us, Haight-Ashbury and you know, all of the Jefferson airplane, Grateful Dead, take drugs, draw, all that right. stuff hit us. People that there were a lot of vulnerable people and they, their lives were destroyed and they were not always the poor. In fact, you could make the argument that a lot of the, the majority of Mexican-American uh, kids, I think, weathered that better because they had a more um, multi-generational family. You, in those days, they did. And a lot of the poor white kids and even the affluent white kids um, got caught up in it. So even when this is a link, linkly explanation just to say that, yes, he's right. You know, small towns are more stable and we need to champion that. But they're often vulnerable as well, partly because people say, I can't I got to get out of here. I remember I always say to my mom, when I turn 18 and go to college, I'm never coming back here. And she said, uh, promises, promises, Victor. <laughs> but, yeah, I came, I came back eight years later and never left. But my point is, everybody has a, wants to get out of a small town. You go up to a big city and you there's oh, I'd be anonymous. Oh, if I did something, nobody would know about it. Oh, yeah. you can there's all these opportunities and appetites. I can be a sinner and go to hell. <laughs> that kind of nihilism when you're young, but not in a small town. Yeah, even in by the way, Victor, in a big city, uh, maybe I don't know that New New York City's unique, but it does have a lot of neighborhoods that are very mm -hmm. geographic. And 5,000 people type of things. And yeah, you walk down the block, you know, everybody. It's weird to live in a, in a small, you know, it's not a small town, but you know, a neighborhood of Woodlawn in the Bronx really is in its I, way. I, and you yeah. want to get out of there. This society is schizophrenic because the trans transitory nature of it, the idea that we're rootless, that, we're anybody's that we can live anywhere, any place people. Right. I, it, it's the law of the marketplace. So you're out there, let's say in Fresno, California, and you're doing a great job at a, as a small CEO and somebody discovers you as a real talent and you just root your family up or you, you just zoom off to Louisiana and run a company or you're a doctor and you're, you're, you're at Stanford Medical School and you get a name and they'll suddenly say, oh, wow, you could go to the Anderson Center in Texas and you go. And the, the result of that is that the country has a meritocracy and it's it just finds people from everywhere, not just in the United States. It roots them out and then they, they all move and their value system is based on compensation, title, and to be fair, the excellence of their work and we all benefit it. But there's a price to pay you have to have enough people who are somebody's and they live in some place rather than anybody's that live in any place because they root the whole country yeah. 
They're the people who say (laughs) they turn on the news and they see uh, a Chris Matthews in the old days or Rachel Randy and they say, no, 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 no. (laughs) I'm not going to fall for this crap. Or they they see that they just. They're there to, to, to remind the transitory bicoastal elite that what ultimately what keeps the country running is some guy out in the Middle West, Bakersfield, Dayton, you name it. He gets up at five in the morning. He has his coffee. He gets in that truck and he drives all the time. He doesn't steal from it. He doesn't kill people. He doesn't drink while he's driving. And then there's another guy who's out there. He gets up at 4.30 in the morning. He goes up and he gets his big chainsaw and he cuts timber. Mm. He's out there farming on a tractor up and down, up and down, up and down, back and forth those rows all day long, quiet desperation, heroism. And those people keep the country moving. Right. I I wish I could say Mark Zuckerberg and, and Elon, they do too in a way, but the fun. Yeah, but Victor, and those are the ones when they go home after an exhausting day of work and turn on the TV and it's, you know, uh, uh, Ferguson is on fire or Baltimore is on fire, you know, ten, eight, 10 years ago. And they were the ones to be, to, to blame for all that. You know, that's uh, well, I yeah, think brought, I, yeah. brought around the, the, you know, the Trump movement is. Uh, I is just wrote an article about that. Why? How to start a conspiracy theory. It comes out Monday. You just lie to people and you have asymmetrical application of the law. So that guy works all day and he he sees, you know, all these leftists saying, oh, January 6th. Forget about what happened. All he sees is a bunch of violence that goes in the Capitol. The Capitol supposed to be closed. He says, let's punish them if they broke the law. And then he he thinks back and said, wait a minute. I saw May, June, July, August of 2020. It wasn't one day. They carved out whole areas of Washington and Seattle. What was it called? Chaz and Chop, where they wouldn't even give it back for 21 days. They killed 35 to 40 people. It wasn't one day hitting an officer. It was 1,500. Yes, the Capitol is iconic, but they went after a police precinct. They went after a federal courthouse. They went after the St. John's Church right across from the White They went after the White House grounds and tried to storm it. And, you know, $2 billion, not, not the desecration of the Capitol. And when the administration at the time said, well, you need federal troops, they said, no, we don't want them as a summer of love. And then all of a sudden they ring the Capitol with 20,000 federal troops. So what I'm getting at is the average person says, I don't mind you punishing somebody. Don't shoot Ashley Babbitt for the misdemeanor of going through a broken window when she's unarmed. But if you want to publish publish somebody who goes in the capital, he's not allowed to go in on a a holiday, and you go in there, yes, then charge him with the illegal parading. If he does some damage, charge him with that. But don't stick him in solitary and try to trump up, you know, 10 years in prison when you take all these 14,000 other people who were arrested for doing far more death and destruction and not to punish them. They all got off, basically. Yeah. Thanks to Kamala Harris uh, helping helping with their bail. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and psychologically, Marin, this is going to continue and it should continue and it's going to continue to Election Day. Remember that? 
Yeah. And all of a sudden they're going to look at January 6th and see if Donald Trump, he said, go over to the Capitol and assemble and protest and do it peacefully. And she said, keep going. It's going to continue. And then we have these completely intellectually corrupt quote unquote fact finders. Well, she said that, but she was referring only to the nonviolent aspects. Right. She didn't mean the violent. Well, no, she wouldn't do that. That's what that's where we are. She's so, so nuanced. Yeah. So that's why people get angry. They get angry. They get really, really angry when you don't apply the law symmetrically. When they see Fauci write and a redacted email came out, Jack, the last 10 days where he's, he uses the word gain of function in Wuhan. And then he goes before Rand Paul and he says that this is not gain of function and he wouldn't fund it. And he's lying. Yeah, we can't go into this now, but I, you see the news uh, came out the other day. Maybe we should talk about this on our next podcast, but that that we are still giving money to that yes. laboratory. I mean, run, run by that laboratory is run by it would all, the People's Liberation Army. Yeah. Is that, what, what if the... I was on the Stanford campus, which I was, and I said in March, which I did, that there was a high likelihood that the virus was associated by that People's Liberation Army Virology 4 lab, and it was less likely that it was a pangolin or a bat, then you get in big trouble. Right. And now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, sure, sure. Tom Cotton, they went after him for saying it. Now, no, it's, it, oh, yeah, we never said that. Of course it's related. And same thing with the vaccinations. I just got my long COVID. These people in the Ivy League are saying, uh, well, maybe sort of kind of maybe uh, perhaps just to just to note that when you flood your body with spike proteins and this new mRNA genetically transformative vaccination, it might increase for some susceptible people the symptoms of COVID. I mean, right. that's a theory, but they're saying it now. And there were doctors, you know, in that frontline doctors who said that. And they thought they were Satan incarnate. So this is so fascinating. Yeah. They destroyed the lives of all these people for this narrative. And it was basically a political narrative. We're going to shut down the damn country. We're going to make everybody be vaccinated. We're going to destroy the Trump administration. We're going to change all the voting laws so 70% don't vote in election day. And if you dare object, you're a denialist, you're an insurrect. That, that, and there were a lot of lives that were destroyed that yeah, guy, guy at Harvard, Martin Kullendorf, they went after him. Jay Bacharia at uh, Bacharia at Stanford, they went after. I keep talking about. Yeah, huh? no apologies. No millions of kids who've had their kids school lifetime of education effed up. Yes. Millions of people who just sat there in their cubicle, and they had a prostate tumor or a mm -hmm. breast tumor growing, growing, growing. They couldn't get a doctor. A lot of people, their heat went out, and they could not get a Home Depot person to deliver a gas furnace. A lot of people who had severe psychological problems, they needed help. They needed, and they went nuts, cramped into that apartment. And then to be told that you have to follow this or you're a criminal, and then you turn on your TV and Gavin Newsom's at the French Laundry boutique restaurant with all of his lobbyist friends with no mask telling you that you were going to be arrested if you ha didn't wear a mask. And then you see Fauci at a baseball game pulling down his mask. 
and uh, Gavin Newsom doing it in a Dodgers uh, thing. And then yeah. all of a sudden, these trusted medical authorities that we all trust and we must honor, they suddenly come out with a communique. Hey, you stupid people, you better wear that mask or we're going to arrest you. But if you go out into the street with a BLM banner and you've got megaphones and you're screaming and shouting and you're protesting sometimes violently, that's okay. We give you an exemption because we have now issued a communique that it's more psychologically injurious right. to your health, to your health, than yeah. it would be physically injurious to your health if you were to stay in your apartment and say, sorry, BLM, sorry, Antifa, I can't protest today because the government said we're in lockdown quarantine status so we can't do it <laughs> what a joke yeah well well victor um we have come to the end of this podcast at the, the where we do a little business and that's to thank our listeners and those who have visited your website and have signed up thank you all for doing that no matter what platform you listen to this uh the victor davis hansen show on we thank you Oh, I just heard Stitcher, which I always mention is one of the platforms, is shutting down in, uh, at the end of end of August. So uh, if you listen on Stitcher, thank you. We can't say that too much longer. Those who listen on iTunes and Apple can rate the show zero to five stars. Practically everyone is giving you, Victor, five stars. If there were 10 stars, they'd give you 10. Some leave comments. Um, I'm going to have a comment from Twitter. Uh, let me give the Twitter comments. Someone wrote me directly uh, on Twitter, MM Dean two. And I, I'm not, you know, I racked my brain to try to think who this was and I haven't come up with it yet. But he writes, "Hey Jack, I went on two NR cruises, had dinner with VDH, amazing. Tell him I taught math in an LA USD, which I guess is Los Angeles uh, high school, ninety nine percent Latino for thirty years." Aping Escalante, that's Jaime Escalante. I remember we this had, fellow when I talked to him about this. Oh, you did? Okay. So he yeah, said was, we had 100 plus. It was fascinating. Yeah. He said we had 100 plus students taking AP Calc with 80% passing. We worked their asses off. The key was the test. So he oh, wanted you to know that. I, look at, I mean, I, I look back at my students. And gosh. You can give me any student of any ethnic background. Right. If, they're, if they're disciplined, they want to study classical languages. They excel, every one of them. And regardless whether they're white, poor white, rich white, Asian, poor, Hispanic, wealthy, Latino, black, you name it. I, I, I've always believed that, uh, you know, I'm not attacking Charles Murray, but I've always believed if there is a difference in IQ, which he postulated, and he's a scientist, and I'm not. It's of such a minor nature compared to what the role of culture is. Right. And by that I mean you can give you can if there's five or six IQ points difference or ten between different rate, it doesn't matter. It's culture, and you can you can adapt that if you have motivated students yeah. that want to learn, and you give them the, the necessary and the correct type of education. Right. And that's what's if, so you're, if you're a third grader and you read a lot, you your your future is brighter than if not. And I think it's things like, you know, what happens in in a typical household that makes that happen. I saw and that's, it every right, day. It's, 
I would see some guy that looked like you came out of San Quentin and the guy was a genius. You know what I mean? It happened, it happened to me all the time. And that really taught me. And I knew that before growing up here because I've written about people, you know, that were landscapers or mechanics that were reading. And they, not that reading is, is inherently more noble than welding. I'm just saying that we have this weird idea that this particular profile is necessary to get to run the country. And we have people uh, all walks of life that are extremely bright. Right. And uh, they sometimes when they want to get a formal education, they excel. And yeah, they can. It's not a racist country. Believe me, you can excel. If well, you want, if you want to work. But yeah. Well, as the guy says here, you got to work your hiney off. And as you did. You worked yours off when you were, you know, yeah, I mean, studying the, chemical classes. I came from what was called a very poor high school. I thought it was pretty good myself, but I was told when I got to the new campus at UC Santa Cruz that it was a very poor high school and it would be very hard for me to compete. But I noticed something very quickly that all of the kids from Palos Verdes and Pacific Palisades and Marin County of the California kids, they like to stay up at night and they like to drink and they like to party. And all you had to do was come back from your class, call your parents, go into your room, get your books, go to the library, come back at 11 at night and just keep doing that. And you could surpass. And I can tell you there were people that both had a lot better education in high school than I did. And they had a lot more natural aptitude than I did. But it, it was all about discipline and work. And, you know, maybe I look back and I think, wow, why didn't I get drunk? Hey, <laughs> remember that time there was the Latin class? Everybody went skinny dipping. Why didn't you go and join them? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but you think, well, that's not what you were there for. Your parents, oh, your parents wow. were sacrificing. Your whole family got you there. Your job yeah. was to do, to to excel if you yeah. can. I, I, I think that's that's what most people do. I can't. The image of the classics class skinny dipping is. Uh, well, let's now wait a minute, because uh, in those days, UC Santa Cruz was not considered, you know, Florida State or Long Beach State as far as attractive people. Yeah, They were 60s weirdos. And then there you say classics, it narrows. But I can tell you <laughs> that I am now 69 and I wish I had have gone to that uh nude pool party because there were some beautiful women in our class yeah well you you've you've uh i've i've met mrs hansen and she's beautiful so you're you're uh you're very fortunate man. well i hope she doesn't listen to that <laughs> no she, let, let us pray Aramis. but i can tell you i've never done i haven't ever gone to a skinny dipping party well that makes two of us and on that note victor that makes I most think... of our listeners i think unless one guilty party wants to write the angry reader and confess Oh, well, uh, you, I should just add, if you do subscribe to Victor's website, there is a new angry reader posting, and that's where Victor takes a hey, foul before mouth. I leave, before I leave, I had a couple of people write me. I think there's one or two that um, Sammy posted. They asked oh, me, why, about why, yeah, why did you do this? It's so foul. This, this guy is so crazy. What's the purpose? Because he doesn't even have an argument. And the purpose is to remind people that most people on the left that do stuff like don't have an argument. And that's just representative. I could have put 20 more. But the point is, 
I, I like to, people to remember there's a lot of people out there that are absolutely blank, blank, crazy, and they're foul mouth, and right. they don't want to argue. And, you know, I, I, I just was at a place where I debated one of them, and uh, not foul mouth, but just dogmatic. And, right. and so that's what they write. They don't have an argument. They just say blank, yeah. blank, blank, capital letters, exclama- exclamation points, bad grammar, Scatology, ad hoc, the F word, the S word, all in lieu of an idea. And what do you have? A 10, 10 ch- uh, checklist? I gave him of a 10? ten, man. I was, I, I, gosh, I thought, wow, this is a work of art. He's got <laughs> exclamation points. He's got capital letters. He's got capital and small in the same word. He's got the ad hominem. He's got the no argument. He's got the all. I think he had eight, eight. Uh, yeah, you know, you say something about your mother porn- also. No, Is there some porn- kind of- something like pornographic? Yeah, uh, pornographic eight words and and two sentences, and he signs yeah, his well, name if it's real. So it's a great talent. Uh, angry yeah, readers, he, gonna, uh, he got uh, in their ten. way. I haven't given tens very often. Well, all right, Victor, you've been great today. Uh, we've we've uh, talked about some great topics and gone down some very interesting, not rabbit holes, but very worthwhile uh, tunnels. And, and uh, thanks for shedding the wisdom that you always do every, every episode. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 